Phone lines are open. You've got questions. We've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to the Friday edition of The Line of Fire. You've got questions, we've got answers. Yeah, lots of radio hosts do this on Fridays. We've done it for many years now. Any question of any kind on any subject that relates to any area of expertise, we have right here on The Line of Fire. Give us a call, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. By the way, many times on Friday. When the show starts, all of our phone lines are lit up, and then you have to wait for someone to drop out to call in. It so happens that we did a live YouTube Q&A chat right before the show. So we spent, oh, almost an hour answering lots and lots of written questions, which means that we just have some openings. So phone lines are literally wide open. If you call now, we will get to you during the show. So any question of any kind... 866-348-7884. A few announcements to make to you. Uh, We began, oh, a little over two years ago now, putting out our own Consider This videos. If you've seen the PragerU videos, amazing animated videos with top experts on a wide range of subjects, we (laughs) wanted to put out our own videos on subjects of special interest to us as Jewish believers, as evangelicals, holding the unique perspectives that we hold, charismatic, whatever it is. And we just released number 10. Consider this number 10. These take tremendous effort from our team. That's why they come out every couple of months. There's a lot of funding involved to make them available to you. So we just put out number 10. We released it today. It is Can... We know the name of God. Can we know the name of God? And we go through questions about did God, how God revealed his name. And is it Jehovah? Is it Yahweh? Traditional Jews call it Hashem, just meaning the name. That's how they refer to God, Hashem. Uh, should we even try to speculate what's the spiritual significance of knowing the name? So check it out. It's on our YouTube channel. It's on our website, askdrbrown.org forward slash consider this. Also, <laughs> excuse me, I want to remind you that we'll be in Jacksonville, Florida this weekend. I'll, uh, I'll be part of a wonderful conference, a Freedom Restoration Israel Conference, Friday night, Saturday morning, evening, Sunday morning, evening. There'll be a worship concert with Paul Wilbur. Uh, I'll be speaking Saturday morning, part of a panel discussion as well, and then preaching Saturday night, God willing. So check this out. It's all on our itinerary, askdrbrown, askdrbrown.org. Just scroll down for the itinerary, and you'll find the info. Next week, scheduled to be in Dallas, and then it's the week after that in Pensacola. Anyway, we're back on the road, back on the road, 866 Three, four truths. Oh, oh, one more thing. My latest article 
time for a massive reset in the evangelical church in America. It's on our website, sdrbrown.org. It's on stream.org. I think you'll find it to be a really important read. Key things that we can do now as the church in America to have a, a major reset so that we can be all God's calling us to be in these critical, critical days. Um, all right, I am going to go to the phones momentarily, and we will start in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Ray, welcome, excuse me, Roy, welcome to the line of fire. Yeah, Dr. Brown, I got a question. It's kind of in two parts. Number one, I've heard that uh, Peter didn't write Second Peter because it's so much different than First Peter. And I, I don't know if you're a Greek expert like you are in Hebrew, but if you if you're reading it from the Greek, does First and Second Peter is it is it kind of like? Can you tell the difference in the Greek? Say, like in Hebrews, I know it's Great Greek, and so is Luke's stuff compared to what John wrote. Can you actually tell that in the Greek when you read it? Uh, there, there are differences, but that's not significant because uh, Peter may have used a scribe. To, in other words, no one says he actually wrote the words physically himself. And he may right. have used a scribe. The scribe may have helped translate or develop the Greek. Uh, he may have developed things in, in Aramaic and then with help put them into Greek. So that presents no problem. There, there, there is a debate among scholars Basically, critical liberal scholars say Second Peter was not written by Peter for a number of reasons. Conservative scholars believe they can give a good argument for Second Peter being written by Peter. But even where there are differences, it's no concern because scribes were used in, in the writing of, of these documents. Uh, I was looking at a video the other day where a rabbi said Peter didn't write anything because he was illiterate. Well, we don't know whether he was illiterate or not, but he could have used a scribe. He could have dictated and a scribe wrote things down. So there's no... No surprise or problem with that if there are differences in the Greek style. Okay, quickly, let me ask you this. I've heard in the Quran there's some crazy sayings, like one is the sun sets in a mud puddle. But I also know that when you're translating, and I learned this from James White's book, King James' Only Controversy, he gave some kind of a, a little a sentence in French and in German, and if you translate that literally, uh, I think the early bird catches the worm in English, and it comes out the cockroach does something in in French. So what I'm wanting to know is, when we translate the the, the Arabic Quran into English, and we come up on a phrase like the uh, the sun sets in a mud puddle, are we missing something there that the Arabic wouldn't miss? Right. So that's a very fair question to ask, Roy, and it's one we need to ask. In other words, we need to be fair in our criticisms. Some have said, for example, more broadly, that you don't want to take the best of your religion and compare it to the worst of someone else's religion. So you want to treat things equally and then come to your decision. So you want to understand the Arabic in context as best as possible and then conclude whether it's saying something absurd or not. But here's, here's the easy thing, Roy. There are many translations of the Quran into English. There is even a Quran commentary, like with study notes and things, just like you'd be familiar with the Bible with study notes. There's one that's come out now reflecting a lot of Quranic commentary and background, all in English. So if you'll just search online for translations of the Quran, and if you will look at any of these verses that seem to say something very bizarre, then you'll see the various translations. If they all translate it the same way, older ones more modern ones, 
then that would be what's being said. Then the question is, okay, what is meant by that? Is it as crazy as it sounds? But it's easy to compare. So the simple thing is you look at a number of different translations, older ones and more modern ones, and then if you can, you look for some commentary on it, and then you can conclude, okay, the Quran says something crazy here, or the Quran does call for violence here, or the Quran uh, attributes something to Jesus that's completely mythical. It's, it's fairly easy to check, but you're asking the right questions, excellent questions. That's how you sort it out, by looking at multiple translations and seeing if an idiom has been missed, if something was translated in a hyper-literal way. And because you, it is Muslims, the vast majority of translations of the Quran are Muslims translated. They want to translate it as accurately as they can. In fact, there's no such thing as the Quran in English or the Quran in French. It is a translation of the Quran because the Quran is literally only in Arabic. Everything else is a translation of the Quran or the meaning of the Quran. Whereas we would say that's the Bible, even though it's in English or French or another language, because God intended it to be translated as well. Hey, thank you, Roy, for the call. 866 Three, four, truth. We go to High Point, North Carolina. Orlando, welcome to the line of fire. How you doing, Dr. Brown? Doing well, thank you. Uh, my question Hello? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, my question deals with uh, replacement, I don't know if replacement theology is the same thing as all millennium. Right, so there are two different categories. Uh, the question is replacement theology, the idea that the church has replaced Israel in God's economy, that the role that God had in the earth for Israel is now fulfilled through the church or the promises that God gave to Israel now transferred over to the church. Replacement theology and amillennialism, which is an end time scheme, which says there is no literal physical rule of Jesus on the earth. There is a spiritual rule. So amillennial, there is no physical millennium. Uh, do they intersect? So one is a, is a larger theological system. The other is an end-time end belief or uh, an understanding of prophetic scripture. There is no question that they overlap. Why? Because amillennialism does not see the physical promises to Israel being literally fulfilled. So, so if you, are they... I'm sorry, are they being uh, anti-Semite or are they, are they no, being... No, not necessarily. No, no, they're not necessarily being... There's not necessarily Jew hatred in that or believing lies about Jews. They're simply believing and understanding that all of the promises about a future kingdom are to be understood spiritually. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth forever and ever and ever. But they would not recognize the the physical restoration of the Jewish people to the land of Israel today as fulfillment of prophecy because they would say that there will just be a, a spiritual fulfillment of those promises. Now, they are not anti-Semites. I, I know some that, are, that love the Jewish people and, and that politically even support Israel, but they don't believe it is fulfillment of prophecy. I would say that these beliefs open the door to potential anti-Semitism even the, and that's what's happened through church history, but no, just because someone is amillennial does not mean in any way that they are that they are necessarily anti-Semitic, uh, certainly not. But again, it is a potential open door of replacement theology that can lead to anti-Semitism. Thank you for the question, sir. I appreciate it. Eight six six three four truth. Let's go to Fresh Meadows, New York. Dina, welcome to the line of fire. 
Hi, Dr. Brown. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you. <laughs> it's great to be on with you. Um, yeah, so I, I had a question. something I had never thought about, but it came up yesterday during a conversation with a friend of mine. Um, what does um, like what does the meaning of the word Jewish mean? Like, if if Christian means Christ-like, or I've heard like a mini Christ, I've heard those definitions <clears throat> as well. What, what does Jewish mean? Uh, right. So, Jewish is is pertaining to being a Jew. The the ish mm-hmm. is just part of a, of a national ending that you have it with with different different words. But we'll, we'll, we'll come back and then set a break. We got a break here, so stay right there. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on The Line of Fire. Michael Brown, you've got questions, we've got answers, 866-34-TRUTH. So back to Dina in Fresh Meadows, New York. You'll actually hear black Hebrew Israelites and some of these other cults say, well, Jewish, it's not really being a Jew because it's ish, it's not as if it's diminishing it. The, the ish there is like Spanish, English, Irish, British. So if you're from Spain, you're Spanish. If you're from England, you're English. The language that comes from England is English, from Ireland, Irish. So pertaining to, to Jews, Judaism, Jewish culture, Jewish religion, Jewish ethnicity, that's Jewish. So what specifically were you asking within that? Yeah, I guess I was just wondering if there was like, um, it kind of like how um, with a Christian, you would say it's someone who, who you know, we're, we live to be like Christ, right? So I was wondering if with, with, with the word Jewish, there was something like that as well. Like maybe obviously there is, layers of um of what it means but maybe it like just sort of like a an easy definition of um the root word of jewish no you don't want to go you don't want to go back to that and that has to do with praise and and yehuda and all that no that's it's simply pertaining to being a jew mm-hmm. <clears throat> so jewish religion mm-hmm. jewish culture etc israel's jewish nation okay. yeah that's that's all you don't want to read more into it than that Okay. All right. Thanks for asking. I appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go over to Greg in Richmond, Virginia. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Uh, I listen to you every day, and I just wanted to comment that, that you're a very courageous man. Uh, you have a lot of—you're a brave man. I really respect you. Well, thank you for your kind words. Uh, I just want to throw out a speculation that I've been thinking about a whole lot, and that is when when we have our voting on November the 3rd, that my thoughts are that Antifa or or some radical people are going to be at the voting polls trying to block possible Trump voters from coming in and voting. They've done everything they could think of to try to, you know, take him down and talk bad about him and block him. And 
I'm just thinking that the voting polls, they may well show up in strength. I'm wondering what you think about it. Honestly, I have no idea what's coming November 3rd. I, I have no idea what's going to happen with mail-in votes, physical votes, whether there'll be riots, protests. Uh, I can feel fairly sure that if, well, there are not enough of the protesters to spread out all over America, obviously. But millions right. have been involved in recent protests, and, and there are radicals in different cities, and there is organization and funding of some of these things. During the uh, uh, elections for President Obama, there were Black Panthers that were intimidating people outside of, uh, of some precincts, the Philadelphia area, if I recall. But again, that, that was few and far, those things were few and far between. Uh, I feel fairly sure that if you had some of these radical leftist groups trying to protest, that you'd have some Trump-loving people with guns ready to fight back. I mean, things could get crazy. I I don't think it'll get that bad, personally. I think there'll be a frenzy leading up to it, and perhaps a frenzy afterwards. And is there a possibility of a delayed election? It seems highly, highly unlikely. But nothing would surprise me. Everything is so volatile. It's one of these. It's one of these situations where you can't really look ahead. You know what I'm saying? You can't look ahead like like you normally do. You know, our, our Israel tour, for example, we had scheduled for May, so we postponed it to October. But things were too iffy, so we've now moved it to to, to March. So folks can still get in. By the way, go to the website askdrbrown.org, and it's right there on the homepage. Uh, I I just spoke to to dear friends I've visited in India every year for 27 years straight. And, and normally I'm there towards the end of the year. And I said, hey, what's going on? Is the visit going to happen? So, so many things are uncertain. But nothing would surprise me. Upheaval, claim, whatever happens, there's going to be controversy. That, that one thing, Greg, I feel fairly confident about. Whatever happens with the elections November 3rd, there's going to be controversy surrounding it. And the controversy is not going to blow over. That's not a prophecy. That's just an educated hunch. By the way, Greg, is for me being courageous, I, I appreciate the kind words. To be perfectly honest with you, to me, it's a matter of obedience. In other words, if I understand something to be God's will, then that becomes the all-consuming thing, and you, you just do it. What else are you going to do? If, if you understand that's his will, and it's burning in your heart, you do it. And to me, it's more obedience than courage. Once you're clothed in obedience, it seems that the grace is just there. So he's very faithful. He's a, he's a faithful, good God, and it's our joy to to be on the front lines. Uh, and let's pray. Let's pray for God's best. Let's pray for God's best for the nation. I am not, I never, ever pray for a particular candidate to be elected, ever. I pray for God's plan, God's best for the nation. Thank you again for the call. Um, let's go over to Isaac in Gainesville, Florida. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, it's a pleasure to speak with you again. I have two brief questions. One relates to Deuteronomy 30 and the eventual repentance of the Jewish people. Moses seems to emphasize that at the end of days, the Jewish people will return to the Torah. And his language of today and book of the law seem to restrict this to the actual Mosaic law, not God's general moral principles or even the law of Christ. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with this assessment? And if you do, does that mean the nation of Israel will return to Torah obedience before the end? That's question number one. Question number two is totally unrelated. And I'm not sure if you're allowed to do this, but do you have any recommendations for graduate programs in Old Testament studies and the biblical language of Hebrew? Yeah, sure thing. 
so to answer the second question first, and I'm, I'm allowed to do whatever I want. It's my show. Now, if, you, if someone calls and says, hey, can I recommend a local congregation or something, we're we really not in a position to do that for a number of reasons. But um, if, if you really want to learn the language as well and study with conservative biblical scholars, uh, this, I've, I've been an adjunct prophet at a bunch of different seminaries in America. But the one that, that may have the most solid pro- program in Hebrew, Semitic, Old Testament it could well be Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. And some of my friends are still teaching there. Uh, if, you, if you're looking for a program that is, is um, one that's going to have more of a Jewish studies background, the King's University in Dallas, where I also teach, and they have a lot of online classes, uh, Gordon Conwell in, in Massachusetts and in, in Charlotte has some great programs. I mean, there, there are quite a few, but maybe the one that could be the deepest overall, especially with Semitics, uh, might, might be TED's, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in, in Deerfield, Illinois. Um, as, as for Deuteronomy 30, does that prophesy that the nation of Israel will return to Torah? Obviously, it doesn't mention Jewish tradition. It doesn't mention Talmud. It doesn't mention all the things that were added. So if you just wanted to press that it was a literal obedience to the Mosaic Covenant. I would say there, there are two ways of looking at that. One, that's part of the Sinai Covenant, and it's something that, that will never happen because of Israel's failure. In other words, this is part of the Sinai Covenant. If you will repent and, and return to me at the end of, of the age, I will circumcise your heart so you take your step, I will help you, and you will be an obedient nation. And with that, there will be blessings. So some would just say that is part of the Sinai covenant. Israel failed. Israel was never going to get it right. Hence, God instituting the new and better covenant that he prophesies through Jeremiah and through Ezekiel. That's one way of reading it. The other way of reading it is that this is actually talking about the new covenant that you can read starting in Deuteronomy 29. This is besides the covenant that God made with Moses on Sinai and that it will be Torah lived out in light of the Messiah. In in other words, as Yeshua said, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill. So this will be Torah as God intended it, lived out through the fullness of the Messiah. So Sabbath and the holy days will come into their fullness of meaning. And obviously you won't have the need for sacrifices. Some rabbinic traditions say in the world to come, when the age to come, you only have Thanksgiving offerings because you won't need offerings for sin and things like that. So if you recognize that there'll be fundamental changes in Israel's relationship with God and that some of the circumstances of sin, atonement, that that would change because of circumcised hearts, then obviously if, if it's the new covenant, I'll remember your sins no more, then you don't need an annual day of atonement. So you would say that is the covenant, the Torah, but lived out in light of, of the fullness of the new covenant and fullness of the Messiah. So would there be a day when national Israel is celebrating the Sabbath and celebrating the biblical calendar, but doing it in the fullness of Messiah? Yeah, why not? Uh, so there will be changes, but there will be the very changes that bring these things to their fulfillment. And obviously certain laws, there's a lot in the Torah that clearly is for a certain period of time that no longer applies after that. And, and by the way, as I've been listening to the Bible again on an audio form, so much of what God established, so many of the laws were only for a short period of time, like the tabernacle, right? 
and then that was gone. There was no physical tabernacle. Then, then it was a temple. But through most of our history, we have been able, unable to observe most of what's written in the Torah in terms of content. So I look at it, Isaac, that at, at the end, that either this is referring to Deuteronomy 30 is part of the Sinai covenant, which fails, so God makes a new and better covenant, or Deuteronomy 30 is an advanced picture of the new and better covenant. So Torah lived out in the Messianic era, in the life of the Spirit, as fulfilled by Messiah. Yeah, it could well be like that. And we know that the prophecies at the end of the book of Isaiah speak of the millennial kingdom, and from one Sabbath to another, nations coming to worship God. And Zechariah 14 speaks of the nations coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So it could well be that there will be glorious fulfillment of the Torah in the Messianic age. Hey, thank you for the call, Isaac. Always good to talk with you. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Don't forget to check out our brand new Consider This Video. Consider this video number 10 in our series, Can We Know the Name of God? Great content, great animated illustrations. It's on our YouTube channel, ASKDR Brown. Ask Dr. Brown for your free, free viewing. Share it widely with your friends. It is also on our website, askdrbrown.org forward slash consider this. You can find all 10 videos there. 866-34-TRUTH. You've got questions. We've got answers. And if we don't get them, we'll, we'll find them. We'll find them for you. All right, let's go to Brian in Oceanside, California. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Okay, cool. Um, thank, I just want to say thank you so much for your work, and uh, I'm pretty amazed by how, you, how you're able to do everything you do, writing books and doing the show and speaking on your, at your university. It's pretty amazing. Uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, Ezekiel 39 mm-hmm. and uh, Magog. I, I've just recently been, like, I guess my whole life I've been making an exodus out of uh, the kind of dispensational stuff you read, dispensational, like, uh, eschatology. And uh, I dropped the rapture view uh, a long time ago when I was in middle school, uh, when I was younger, uh, about 12 years ago. But I'm just trying to figure out, because I've also been listening to Joel Richardson and mm-hmm. uh, Dalton Thomas, and I watched the Covenants and Controversy, the, the documentary you were on. Yep. Um, so anyway, sorry, I, I just wanted to ask, do you think, one, the, do you think uh, Gog, Magog, is that is that someone coming from Turkey? Um, and then two, is... Is this the same as in Revelation when it talks about Gog and Magog, or are these two separate uh, events? Like, right, like so there's one a prophecy. The yeah, there's a prophecy in Ezekiel 39, uh, really begins uh, right before that. So uh, the 36th chapter is, is the prophecy of the return of the Jewish people from Babylonian exile and God putting a new heart uh, within our people. And then the 37th chapter, the, the dry bones 
the, the, the Valley of Dry Bones, that famous vision, and then Gog, Magog in 38 and 39, and then the, the Temple vision in 40 to 48 in the book of Ezekiel. So uh, how are we to interpret those? Is there going to be a literal end-time war against Israel where God fights for his people? In short, the answer is yes, as I understand it. That that is something that has not yet happened, but that will happen. It's spoken also in Zechariah 12. It's spoken also in Zechariah 14. So I do do believe there will be a final attack on Israel, a coalition of nations coming against the people of Israel, out of which God will deliver them and the Messiah will be revealed. As for the specific identities, and does it involve Russia or Germany or Turkey or... That, to me, is highly debatable. Even the exact mm. meaning of, of Gog and Magog, or Gog and the land of Gog, uh, who exactly is Gog? Ancient Semitic scholars, ancient Eastern scholars refer to a, a, an individual named Gugu, you know, a particular a king and leader, and was that the name that was being used? Because Gog mm. in itself has, has no specific meaning, and Magog could be a Semitic formulation for land of, of Gog, uh, I, I am not going to debate the characters involved, the specific details. Now, maybe others have more insight into that than I do, but I am not going to debate it. It certainly does not specifically speak of an invasion coming from Russia, which some have argued based on one of the words <laughs> there. Um, so, yeah. I, But I do believe there'll be a final attack. I do believe that the unwalled cities is pointing to uh, a world peace that will be a temporary peace immediately before this happens. It could be in conjunction mm-hmm. with 1 Thessalonians 5, where Paul says when people are speaking peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come on them as travail on a woman in labor. Uh, so that could well be the, the situation. And Joel Richardson may well have insight as to how that could happen with an Islamic Antichrist, etc. So again, others may have more insight on it than I do, but that it will literally happen or that, there will, that it speaks of an end-time war and conflict. Yes, I, I do expect that. As for uh, Revelation 20, Revelation 20 puts this after the millennium, whereas mm. we would normally understand this as, the, as something before the millennium. So either we're getting the chronology wrong and it is after the millennium, or more likely, as the book of Revelation does, it constantly draws on images from the Old Testament. I once heard okay. that, that over 270 of the 400-plus verses out of Revelation are drawn on imagery from the Old Testament. I never studied it in enough depth to come to my own conclusion on that. But if so, it's just drawing on Gog and Magog as, as images of hordes of nations and a final rebellion, uh, rather than putting it in a chronological sequence. So that's as I understand it, Brian. Wow. Oh, that's so awesome. When, if it's okay, I just want to ask one other, hopefully it's a quick question, a quick answer. When it says every nation in... Revelation thirteen seven that the beast would have control like authority over every nation. Does that is that literal? Is it hyperbolic? Because it's like apocalyptic literature. Right. Is it's it, apo- it's is apocalyptic it literature. Right. It's apocalyptic literature. So everything has to be processed in terms of understanding and meaning because it's symbolic. But uh, if it is depicting a final rule of the Antichrist, yeah, I I would believe that there will be a seduction of the nation. It doesn't mean every person in every nation. Revelation plainly speaks of God's saints in the midst of great tribulation being protected and shielded or being martyred. Uh, but it could well be that it's speaking of the nations of the world will fall under this sway. You know, there is the spirit of the world, the spirit of the age, but God's people within the nations 
will, will not. Hey, thank you for the call, Brian. Appreciate it. And uh, Wilberforce, I trust it's not the William Wilberforce because he's been gone for some time, but Wilberforce on YouTube, thank you for your contribution. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, right beneath the chat box, there's a dollar sign. Click on that. Your gift of any size helps us. On Facebook, there's a donate button. Bing! Click on that, and you stand with us. It's, it's that simple. Yeah, you stand with us immediately. So thank you for your support and help. All right, let us go to Dante in Brentwood, California. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Uh, thank you, Mr. Brown. Uh, I have a question about, um, you know, the oral Torah? Yes. In terms of, um, you know, okay, so I'm, I'm coming from the Orthodox position. And um, so how would, um, do you believe that there's anything oral? Because I just don't, I mean, let me not be mistaken from, many Orthodox Jews, because I don't believe that everything in the oral Torah goes back to Moshe. Some of the things I believe goes back to Judah the Maccabee, some of it goes back to Ezra, some of it goes back to the, you know, the time of Yeshua, and that's how far I believe, you know, the time zones go back. And also, I think some of it goes back, for example, circumcision is an oral Torah that was never really recorded until the days of Moshe. So, do you believe in any type of oral Torah, like the head covering in the book of Sefer Waikara, where it talks about a woman you know, has guilt or her husband is suspected of guilt, her tehel will be removed? Do you believe in any type of oral Torah? Uh, I don't believe, yeah, so, so Dante, just for the sake of, of our listeners and viewers that aren't familiar with this, traditional Judaism believes that God gave Moses the written Torah that we have recorded in the five books of Moses, along with that an oral Torah, and in that he gave explanations, amplifications, principles of interpretation, of the written Torah, and then that oral Torah developed through the ages that in each generation new decisions would be made, uh, decrees would, would be enactments, so takanot enactments, decrees, because they wrote that these would be added in different generations, and right up until this day, oral Torah is still developing. So, Dante, do I believe that there is an inspired oral Torah in an unbroken chain that is authoritative? Not, not no, no, I'm, I'm just going to tell you what I don't believe and what I do believe, okay? Okay. So I do not believe there is an authoritative chain of tradition that God gave to Moses that has been passed on through the generations without which we cannot understand the Torah. I do not believe that. I reject the rabbinic claim of an authoritative oral law for many reasons. I, I spent a whole volume, volume five, of answering Jewish objections to Jesus, explaining why, or much of that volume. Secondly... I have no question that traditions developed over the centuries, of course. We all know that. Uh, oral traditions ultimately put in writing. And if, uh, you know, for example, wearing a yarmulke, there's, there's no support in Torah for that. There's not even support in the Talmud for it. There's reference to one Talmudic sage who wouldn't even walk a few feet without, without a head covering. But uh, you could go to different parts of the Jewish world a thousand years ago, and then we're praying with their heads uncovered. Uh, the, okay, the ban of, so what about what about the chel? You're mentioning everything that the benefits you, but how about the chel? When it clearly mentions that in Sefer Waikra. So what? Okay, specifically, what's the verse that that you're pointing to? What, what is the? So in the Sefer, it talks about um, basically if a woman is her husband is jealous of her, right? That she might have some type of guilt. She would have to go to the Kohen Gadol, right? Present herself with her husband. Right. Fluid, but not only this, but her tehillim uh, would be removed from her head. But that eventually, 
you know, that was written down. That's a form of oral charge, just like circumcision. But who, who, wait, wait, where does it say, how do you know that there was something before that? I'm trying to understand you, sir. I'm not trying to argue. But, yeah, women commonly covered their heads in the ancient world. It's reflected in the New Testament as well. Many parts of the world today, exactly. they, they, still, they still do that. But, so that exactly. was just custom. Where, where is there anything oral that then got written down? What's written down is what's written down. Right. It, okay, so that wasn't written down in the sense of it was just more so a reference, right? A reference meaning that this is what happened, but there's nothing that says to do it, but it's an inference. Right, she's not required, doesn't say she's required to cover her hair there. The Torah doesn't say she's required to. Okay, but as we both understand, that's considered part of your body. Right, so I'm still not getting the point, sir. So you so you condone women uncovering their head. What about their breasts? What's next? Yeah, the Bible, throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament calls for modesty. And speaks exactly, against women so, who are seductive. So in every culture, it's right. it's going to vary. Right. So you think that you agree at the same time, disagree. No, but that's not based on oral Torah. That's based on scripture. Scriptural principles but, to be modest. I don't I don't need any oral tradition. So so no, let me ask you this, Dante. Do you believe a woman should shave her head and wear a wig? Do I no, I don't believe in wigs. Oh, but no, but hang on. But that's many religious Jews hold to that today, based on oral Torah. But they're wrong. Even, ah, even, so you uh, can you can hang on. So you can pick and choose, Dante. But no, when I base everything on scripture, I base everything on scripture. There are all kinds of interesting oh. traditions, but I base everything on scripture. If it's not in, if it goes against scripture, okay. then I reject it. We both know that Moshe, even Mamun, never condoned any type of wigs. That's only Ashkenazi Jews doing that dumb stuff. Ah, all right. So, so hey, Dante, tell you what, I, I want to be fair to to other callers, but um. Let's, let's chat another time. And uh, I'd encourage you to check out Volume 5 of my series, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus. Maybe you could read it and shoot us a note. Tell us where you, you differ. All right? But I'd love to talk to you again. All right? It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on the line of fire, 866-348-7884. Look, I'd, I'd like to take hours with certain callers, and I know they have arguments they want to develop at length. We're just not able to, to do that. Obviously, in fairness to others, we, we try to get to the root of issues and, and answer responsibly. But, uh, Dante, if you're still out there, you can always write to us. And I have a colleague, Egal, a Ph.D. in Old Testament, Russian, Israeli, Jew, fluent in Hebrew, uh, as well as Russian and English. And he answers many of the Jewish-related questions that come on, will then pass his answers on to me. I'll look at them and sometimes add things in or interact directly with the folks. So if, if you're generally probing, wanting to understand, not just win an argument, but understand our position, by all means, continue to Reach out or call us on a Thursday. It's another good day to call when we talk about Jewish issues. All right, back to the phones we go. And in Gastonia, North Carolina, Roy, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. Hello. Go uh, ahead. It's actually good to get through. Um, I had a question. Um, I was listening to a pastor uh, teaching from the book of Nehemiah, 
And when um, they had brought out Ezra and he had read through the Torah, uh, this episode had been re-aired previously in both times. One book in the Torah seemed to stick out in my mind concerning revival, and that was the book of Deuteronomy. So I appreciate the question from Mr. Isaac earlier. Yeah. And um, I don't know if there's precedence for this or not, but can the book of Deuteronomy be used as a guideline to revival? And uh, if this is a little bit different from the way most people would think, is there any resources that can be used to grant a study on this? Yeah, so Deuteronomy has always been the most popular of the five books of the Bible, meaning the, the one that's most quoted in the New Testament. Uh, the prophets, Isaiah is the most quoted, the poetry, wisdom, literature, Psalms is the most quoted. But Deuteronomy seems to have more ongoing application in many ways, even though we're not called to be under the Sinai Covenant today. But Deuteronomy as a template, yes. In other words, the, the reminding God's people of his great works in the past, pointing out our sin and our apostasy, and calling for us to turn to him in wholehearted obedience, those are revival-related themes, and so would, would fit in that regard. There is a, a book that came out decades ago, and I want to see if it's still available, by Samuel Schultz on Deuteronomy. Uh, he was a, an Old Testament prophet, Wheaton, I believe. <clears throat> and let's see. Okay, so in Every Man's Bible Commentary series, that's a simple series. Schultz wrote a commentary there in 71. Um, but I thought he had kind of like a good news according to Moses' uh, book as, as well. But anyway, I mean, just Schultz's Deuteronomy commentary is, is, is a, a simple commentary in that regard. You may check out the NIV application commentary to Deuteronomy by Daniel Block, Old Testament scholar Daniel Block, especially known for his Ezekiel work. But a practical application of Deuteronomy, the NIV application commentary, you might find helpful as well. So thank you, Roy, for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Alex in Salt Lake City, Utah. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You bet. Uh, so my question my question is just finding a truth. Um, I was born and raised in Salt Lake City, Utah, and so it's uh, mostly Mormons. Um, and so growing up, I never knew a Christian. All my friends were Mormons, so... But I, I never felt like it was true. And so I veered away. You know, I didn't have God and ended up in a dark place, ended up going to jail. Mm. And that was the first time that I really read the Bible and I had someone from a Christian church come and talk. And since then, I've been reading the Bible and I've been trying to be strong in my faith. And I believe that the Bible is 100% the Word of God, just the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, and so... My question for you is that for those other people that are in different religions, whether that be Mormon, uh, whatever, uh, you know, Jehovah's Witness, if because I understand some people will never really read the Bible, they'll read the other scriptures, but those that really read the Bible, like 
those are apologias for other churches that understand the Bible. Why is it that they they don't find truth in it? Why do they are they blinded by the truth? I know Jesus says those that have ears let them hear. Right. But why why, is why, it that why say with a traditional that it's true? Yeah, why does a traditional Jew study the Bible every day, study the Hebrew Bible, and not see Jesus the Messiah in it? Right. Or why does a Jehovah's Witness read the Bible and, and not see the true gospel? Ultimately, God knows the condition of every person's heart, and he is a righteous judge, that what he will do is, is perfect and good and fair, and no one will be able to accuse him of being unfair or unjust on that day. Obviously, if you're raised in a particular religion and learn to read the Bible through a certain lens, that's how you see it. But God gives a universal promise to everyone that if we will seek him earnestly, we'll find him wherever we are. And we know that through the cross, he's drawing all people to himself. So as to why one person sees and another doesn't, is it a matter of humility? Is it a matter of sincerity? Um, God knows. We, we don't know that. Uh, if you're a Calvinist, your answer would be that he chooses one and not another, which makes logical sense. In other, in other words, if you're a Calvinist, that works logically because it seems that two people equally studying Scripture, one comes to the right conclusions, another doesn't. Perhaps God chose the one and didn't choose the other. I just don't see that as the biblical pattern or what is written. Sometimes it's a matter of, of people are praying for one individual, and as they're praying, God is answering those prayers, opening that person's heart. Sometimes the Holy Spirit has dealt with them to humble them, and they refuse, they refuse, so they, they don't see things. Uh, ultimately, only God knows why one believes and why another does not believe. Again, Calvinists would say it's obvious God opens one eye, one person's eyes and doesn't open the others. I'd say it's not so obvious scripturally with respect to my Calvinist friends, but ultimately we pray. What, what is our responsibility is to pray. Why is it that you never believed in Mormonism? And right now on this station in Salt Lake City, as I'm speaking to Mormons all over Salt Lake City, that, that you've always believed and it seemed to be consistent. And here, Alex didn't believe, didn't see it. God knows the answer to that. But if you will earnestly seek him, whoever you are, and say, God, I just want to know your truth. Whatever it is, wherever it leads, whatever the cost or the consequence, he, he will lead you. He will lead you into the truth. Hey, Alex, thank you for, for a very important question and all the more reason for us to pray and then leave the rest to the Lord. Pray and share the good news, of course. All right, let's grab another call or two. Let's go over to Houston, Texas. Iris, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, how are you? Doing good. Need you to speak right into the phone, Iris, if you can. Okay, let me get it. Hold on, I've got an ear thing on. So All right, me... yeah, we can hear you a lot better then. I know you've been holding for a while, so thanks. Okay, is that better? Oh, yeah, it's like you're right next to me. Go ahead. Okay. Anyway, so my question, I'm a Jewish believer. I've been a Jewish believer forever, raised Jewish, and et cetera. Anyway, um, what are some scriptures? to give people that are involved in the two-house, Ephraim, Jewish, uh, Hebrew roots, yep. about Gentile born-again believers being the lost tribe. Right. So what, what do we tell Gentile Christians 
who are convinced that they are descendants of the lost tribes of the House of Israel, and they'll point back to passages like Genesis 48, and Ephraim will be a company of nations, and that's us. I would simply refer to the New Testament verses that explicitly refer to Israel separate from Gentile believers, most explicitly being Romans, the 11th chapter, where Paul says, I'm writing to you Gentiles, and as much as I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, I want to make Israel envious. Uh, And then at the end of Romans 11, verse 25 and 26, verse 25 speaks of the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, and then on the heels of that, the next event, all Israel being saved. So you have the Gentiles, you have Israel. And earlier he says, I'm writing to you Gentiles to provoke Israel to envy. Uh, Romans 15 explicitly speaks mm-hmm. of the Gentile believers now being added in along with the people of Israel as, a, as opposed to being part of the extended people of Israel. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. just a careful reading of Romans uh, the whole book, but Romans 11, Romans 15, makes it explicit that that there are different classes, even to the Jew first, also to the Gentile. It, it is, again, making that overall distinction. It's not just Jew, but Israel is associated with Jewishness, being a Jew, and then everyone outside, those are the people of the nations, Gentiles. So how else, how else could it be described? But we are one... In the Messiah, Romans 10, 12, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile in the Messiah in terms of equal standing. There's no caste system, no class system. Hey, friends, we're out of time. Look forward to joining you again on Monday. Again, if you're in Jacksonville, Florida, Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, a special, special weekend in Jacksonville. Look forward to seeing you there.